Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Evers' budget address this evening will focus on his plan to substantially increase state aid to education and local government. Given a budget surplus of over $7 billion, Evers is proposing to add over $2.5 billion to K-12 education. This covers everything from funds for mental health programs to smaller class sizes and free school breakfasts and lunch. It does not include expansion of the school voucher program to cover all income groups. This is a key agenda item for the GOP-controlled legislature. It also includes a 10% tax income cut for most tax filers, along with significant tax credits for child care costs and costs of caring for people who are elderly or disabled. And under Evers' plan, cities and counties would see a big increase in state-shared revenue after more than a decade of no change in aid. Most of these proposals are likely to be either sharply reduced or eliminated by the Republican-led legislature. The budget address starts tonight at 7 p.m. A lawsuit is challenging two measures that state lawmakers expected to place on the ballot this April. The suit, filed by two advocacy organizations for incarcerated people, Expo and Wisdom, argues that state lawmakers sent the referenda to county clerks too late and passed the deadline required under state law. One measure would ask voters whether judges can deny bail to potentially violent offenders. The other would ask if voters want to deny public assistance to, quote, childless, able-bodied adults. Both measures are proposed constitutional amendments, and if passed, they would not be subject to a veto by Governor Evers. Political observers view both referenda as politically charged measures designed to increase conservative turnout for the state Supreme Court election, which will also be on the ballot. The lawsuit requests an injunction to postpone placing the constitutional amendments on the ballot until 2024. A ruling on the case is expected by the end of this coming Monday. An analysis of the campaign finance reports for Madison Mayor finds that the incumbent and her major challenger have taken markedly different campaign strategies as the spring primary closes in. The incumbent, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, received nearly $40,000 in the period of January 1st through February 6th, but spent $47,000. During the same period, her challenger left a lot more in the bank, Former Deputy Mayor Gloria Reyes took in $17,000 but spent only $4,000. This leaves Reyes with more cash on hand for the general election in April. A third candidate in the primary, city employee Scott Kerr, reported spending less than $100. Rhodes-Conway received a contribution of $3,500 from the CEO of Frank Productions, Uh, the owner of the Sylvie, and a few $1,000 contributions. She also received $5,000 from the lesbian uh, PAC and $2,000 from an architectural and construction firm. Reyes received contributions of $2,000 from developer Oscar Gebhardt and realtor Richard McKay. The spring primary is next Tuesday. Tired of paying exorbitant fees to recycle your old computers, TVs, and monitors? Well, starting on Monday, Madison residents can drop off their old electronics at any one of the street department sites for free. In addition to a waiver of the usual $25 fee, the city has also done away with the long form that had to be completed for each item. 
The recycling program still requires that electronic items be delivered to the streets department and not left on the curb or placed with other solid waste. In addition to computers, such items as DVD players, computer peripherals, phones, and tablets should also be recycled. Madison school students will have to make up some time in exchange for getting two snow days this year. That's in order to meet state requirements for their instructional time, reports the Capital Times. One day near the end of May will be a day of classroom instruction instead of a day off. And middle school students will have five minutes added to their days starting next Monday through the end of the school year. It's the second year in a row that MMSD has had to shift their schedule to meet the hours of instruction required in a school year set out by the Department of Public Instruction. Last year, the shift happened because of an extended winter break due to a spike in COVID. This year, it's due to the weather. And those are the evening's top stories. Now on to the rest of the day's news. After a short spike in eviction filings after the federal moratorium expired in late 2020, evictions have held steady in Dane County for most of last year. But now they're on the rise as federal funding used for rental assistance begins to dry up. Our producer, Nate Weggehaupt, has more. Eviction filings have steadily risen in Dane County since September of last year, according to data from the State Department of Administration. That comes as federal funds awarded to Dane County for rental assistance are beginning to dry up. Robin Serino is the executive director of the Tenant Resource Center, a nonprofit organization that advocates for Madison tenants, helping to connect renters with housing resources, including in eviction cases. Serino says that the current rise in eviction filings is happening for a number of reasons. Part of it is landlords are getting concerned and, you know, using the court in, in some ways as a debt collection, which, you know, is is a thing with, with folks having some still very big outstanding balances. And, you know, I think with the abundance of emergency rental assistance, we've also seen rents rise in Dane County, you know, as a response to us not having enough housing stock, rents that are high and folks that were receiving, you know, and somewhat now reliant on rental assistance where, you know, that it's the amount of rent outpaces what their household income is. A federal moratorium on evictions put in place in 2020 was lifted in August of 2021, and soon after, Dane County experienced a short spike in eviction filings that only lasted a few months. In May of last year, there were only 95 evictions filed in Dane County, but that number almost doubled by December when 183 evictions were filed. While there has been a spike in eviction filings, few evictions actually end up before a judge. That's because, Serino says, most of the time eviction filings are settled out of court. She says that about 10% of eviction filings actually end in someone being forced out of their home. Serino adds that part of the problem in Dane County is out-of-state landlords not realizing all the options available for tenants. She says that more and more non-local investors are buying property in Madison, and when the state's emergency rental assistance program closed earlier this year, many of those investors did not realize that Madison tenants still have rental assistance options. We've seen non-local property owners filing for eviction much quicker than we normally would. We've seen kind of just an overall fear of hey, the rental assistance is running out in the state and people not understanding that Dane County is a separate program from the state. So kind of moving in those two places has definitely increased the filings. That rental assistance comes in the form of a program called Dane Core 
That program kicked off in September of 2021, utilizing federal funding to provide assistance to qualified renters to help pay past due rent and past due utility bills. Additionally, renters can apply for future rent payments if they are facing an eviction notice or are currently unemployed. DaneCorp distributes the money to three community resources, the Tenant Resource Center for those facing eviction, the Community Action Coalition for Madison renters, and Urban Triage for renters in the rest of Dane County. As of October of last year, the program had distributed over $46 million to over 7,100 homes, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. But Jim O'Keefe, director of Madison's Community Development Division, which helps oversee the Dane Corps program along with Dane County, says that the money is coming to an end. I think we understand that we have gotten all of the funding from the federal government that we're going to get for, to, to support this program. And we have received here in, in the city, we've received um, about $44 million in all, a little more than 30 of that, so about 70% of uh, those funds have been spent to date. So we're currently in the process of determining how long those funds can last, how long we can continue this program. Last September, the Dangcore Rental Assistance Online Portal briefly shut down as the program began to run out of money. The program was able to secure additional federal funding and reopened the portal shortly afterwards. Sharmika Brown is the operations manager for Urban Triage and helped to kickstart their portion of the Danecore program. She says that the momentary closure of the portal opened the eyes of Madison renters. I would say there was an influx in rental assistance applications when, you know, people first heard about the wait list or the portal closing. So when the portal opened back up, you know, it was people were you know, afraid and, you know, think from their understanding is that, you know, for their last request, they needed to get them in. Brown says that currently Urban Triage has around $10 million left in their rental assistance program. Across the country, the situation isn't much better. Adam Chapnick is a research specialist with the Eviction Lab, a project based out of Princeton University that tracks eviction data nationwide. He says that municipalities across the country are struggling with the same issues. About as of October of last year, we're basically seeing an increase in filings in almost all of the sites that we track, which is uh, now 33 cities and 10 states, I believe. And so in about a third of those, we're seeing more filings than we saw before the pandemic. Chapnick adds that the causes of spikes across the country are similar to those here in Dane County. Housing prices are rising and the coffers for rental assistance programs are running dry. Last Sunday, Governor Tony Evers announced parts of his proposed upcoming budget that includes expanding access to legal aid for eviction proceedings. Evers announced that his proposed budget will include $60 million over the next two years to create a new civil legal assistance program for low-income folks and to help create a statewide right to counsel for evictions. Evers will release his entire proposed budget this evening, where it will then go before the Republican-led State Finance Committee, who can change, add, or remove any parts of the budget as they see fit. But in the meantime, Robin Serino says that things are going to get worse before they get better. I have a feeling, you know, that not a feeling. I mean, we have some pretty good evidence showing that as the Dane Corps program shuts down this year, that, you know, that will once again create 
a large spike in, you know, both filings, but also actual homelessness here. So I think that, you know, we're that, that is something we're going to see this summer for sure. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Next Tuesday is the spring primary election, where voters across the state will decide who will be heading to the general election for both local and statewide races. But in order to vote in that election, you will need some form of photo ID. But photo IDs, including driver's licenses, can be difficult, if not impossible, for some to get, especially for immigrants here in Wisconsin. Earlier today, members of Voces de la Frontera met in the state capitol to voice their support for Governor Tony Evers and his budget proposal to make driver's licenses and state IDs available to everyone. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Christine Numez-Ortiz after their press conference. I'm on the line now with Christine Numez-Ortiz with Voces de la Frontera talking about what they are doing in the state capitol today and their call to uh, make driver's licenses available to all. Christine, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much uh, for uh, covering the story. Well, we are at the state capitol with delegation of uh, Madison members. Some folks also joined us for a, you know, social media announcement that we made uh, with some allies as well from different parts of the state of Wisconsin, Wisconsin Farmers Union, to really celebrate the fact that Governor Evers is part of his budget address, two-year state budget address, we know uh, has included the restoring driver's licenses and in-state tuition for immigrants, which is something that our state used to have prior to when um, Governor Walker uh, assumed office. It's something that, in, in the case of driver's licenses, we we actually were one of the states that for decades had a very simple process, which is anyone in the state of Wisconsin who didn't have a social security number, and actually there are people who are do have, you know, legal status who also don't have a social security number. There, there, there is a group of people as well. And, um, and we used to have a, you know, very simple process where people would go to the DMV and would, you know, be able to show identity documents, residence documents, and, you know, do a simple affidavit and, uh, to acknowledge that they don't have a social security number, but then would be, you know, pass the driver's test, physical, and the, you know, the written exam and be able to access insurance. And that was something that, is very good for all Wisconsinites because it obviously saves lives. It makes people less afraid of the police because now, since Real ID took effect in 2007, uh, this was something it forced um, all of the states to tie immigration status to a driver's license. And in Wisconsin, and what it, it, under that Real ID federal law, what it said is that a state could pass a state option for people who don't have a social security number and um, and so uh, basically what we've been fighting for has been for um, to recover what we once had for decades in the state that, you know, it's all in other states. There's 18 states that have now passed this. Minnesota is very shortly, I think, uh, going to win it, pass the assembly, it's, you know, in the Senate now. And it's something that is understood by so many for all the benefits that it brings to so many people. And it, it's something that um, so now there's. 18. I think soon there'll be 19. And we, we want Wisconsin to be the 20th. So we know that's the first step. And it's really a statewide effort. We're also celebrating the fact that we are standing up the Coalition for Safe Roads, which was a coalition that was formed to bring together, you know, statewide different organizations 
to also lend their voice to this effort, also including, you know, law enforcement and agricultural associations and so forth, a very diverse coalition to, uh, to push for this, especially particularly on, on the Republican side. And, and Christine, I'm obviously not having a driver's license makes it difficult to drive, but what are some of the other barriers that people face when they can't get a driver's license? I think one of the, I think the, the, the main one, I think, is the state of anxiety and fear that it, you know, unnecessarily inflicts on immigrant workers and their families. I know that at one of the state capitol hearings, there was a worker who was testifying how when he would drive by, this was Waukesha County, where 287G, it's a program that's taken effect there, where, you know, basically the officers in the jail are deputized to be ICE agents. So basically a simple driving without a license infraction can lead to deportation and separation from your family. A second offense within three years turns into a criminal charge. And so this is something that, you know, this type of program has raised the stakes here in Wisconsin. And now there's, you know, there is under Trump an expansion of this program in Wisconsin and statewide. And so you have this father who was testifying about how when he would drive by and he would drive by a police officer, he noticed that his children in the back seat would pray. And, um, and it's because of that understanding that, you know, the fear that exists. And it really limits people's ability not just to drive to, to work as immigrants are part of our essential economy. You know, it, they are also, you know, it also uh, simple activities like, you know, women, women testified about how they loved, you know, wanted to be involved in the school activities of their children, but a driver's license or state ID was required when there's been um, even serious, like, operations, like someone who had a back surgery who was injured or someone who had, like, a Syrian, someone who had a serious dental surgery. As immigrants, because they didn't have access to a state driver's license or a state ID, at the pharmacy, they were unable to get the prescription for the pain medication that they needed. And so it's just tremendous, like, um, humiliation and human rights violation, frankly. Uh, and it's just the need to be recognized as, um, you know, someone who's part of our community and who we take identification for granted. But actually, under international law, it's considered a, a human rights issue. Um, and, and people, you know, it's really recognizing that people are a part of our community and they have an ID that allows them to to function in our society. And now this isn't the first time that you've called on the state legislature to make driver's licenses available to all. Uh, in fact, four years ago, you uh, were calling for something very similar when Governor Tony Evers introduced legislation to uh, reinstate driver's licenses for undocumented residents and uh, the Republican leaders next to that. What, what are sort of your thoughts on that be here being four years later and still sort of fighting for it? Well, I think, you know, one big lesson that we've made, a change in strategy, has been that at different points in times we stopped, you know, the fight at the state level. Um, we did pick it up, as you said, in the wake of Governor Evers' election, um, because we knew Governor Walker would veto it uh, if it got to his desk. So we prioritized the fight at the federal level for immigration reform. So it's something that where we kind of took our gas, our, our, our foot, off the pedal, you know, at different times. And we just recognize that um, you have to keep the foot to the pedal <laughs> in the state fight. And, uh, and we're not in that, um, so people should not feel discouraged, um, one, for how long it's taken, 
because um, in all other states where people have had to fight, these fights are long fights. They have taken 10 to 20 years. It's um, been in combination with also organizing political power in different ways and building alliances, diverse alliances, and uh, and putting pressure in people understanding too and really connecting with people at the uh, at the at the in their communities so that they're visible and they're heard and they're not alone um, to put pressure on our elected officials. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the difference this time is that, um, you know, we now have a dedicated full-time organizer for, to build the coalition for safe roads, which is, is called, you know, rooted in organizations, obviously voices um, and our respective organizations want to you know, give people the tools so that, they can um, be involved this year in engaging at the local level um, with their elected officials. You know, once we want to see, you know, we've been able to weigh in on the language. We're going to, haven't seen it yet, but we asked for the best. We wanted the best in the governor's budget uh, based from what's, you know, distilled from the experience of um, the national movement. So we're excited to look at that. Um, understand that, um, you know, we, we're building power. We have to build power till we actually have a breakthrough. And, um, and there is a lot of broad support. Um, you have Republican-led business associations like the Dairy Business Association, the Wisconsin uh, Farm Bureau. You have, um, you know, farmers that identify as Republican. But you have a number of people, or even in suburban areas, you know, like uh, one of our strong leaders, the teacher, public school teacher, you know, um, a Republican teacher who knows her, understood the issues through her, and um, has been voting, you know, in solidarity at the polls, um, electing to elect, to help elect uh, pro-immigrant um, candidates. And in general, if you're pro-immigrant, you're pro-worker, too, uh, pro for working class, you know, and, and all of the issues that go with that, healthcare, um, education, all of the things that working people need. I've been talking with Christine Numez-Ortiz with Voces de la Frontera about their push to make driver's licenses and state IDs available for everyone. Christine, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, and thank you for all your listeners for supporting more community-sponsored radio stations. Thank you. Good night. That was WORT producer Nate Weggie helped with Christine Newman-Ortiz, executive director with Voces de la Frontera. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. After you go and vote next Tuesday, Madison College and the Center for Wisconsin Archaeology is sponsoring an event with artifacts featuring a range of objects from different periods of Wisconsin history. Earlier this week, 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with George W. Christensen, director of the Center for Wisconsin Archaeology and instructor at Madison College, and Beth Gills-Klinkner, an association, uh, association dean of the, Co- of the School of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at the college. So, George, what is the Center for Wisconsin Archaeology? How was it founded and what does it do? So, the Center for Wisconsin Archaeology was founded in 2013, and it was the result of uh, work between 
an educational institution and private citizens, archaeologists, who were interested in bringing archaeology to the public, uh, making it more accessible. So in, in addition to doing work that involved contracts with federal and state and private you know, and individuals, we also emphasize archaeo- um, education and uh, actual on-hands uh, experience with the past. And Beth, tell us how this particular event came about. Uh, this event came about because it's really part of our mission to share knowledge and put knowledge out into the community. We have brilliant instructors at Madison College, and they have so much to share, not just with the students at Madison College, but with the greater community. I'm particularly committed to this event because I love the way that it highlights the civilizations that came before us, as well as capitalizing on the interconnectedness of humanity, which is really what we need to move our society forward. And so tell us what kinds of objects are going to be on display on the 21st, George? We'll have uh, a whole range, actually. We'll have materials that will be as old as the first peoples to uh, to come to Wisconsin, and we'll have things as late as uh, the the French uh, and their their role here in, in Wisconsin, uh, everything in between. The real the real bonus here, the real benefit is is that um, the people who are going to be exhibiting are going to be coming from a whole bunch of different levels of interaction with the past. There's going to be professional archaeologists there. There's going to be avocational archaeologists there. There'll be people who just have a, a profound interest in the past, and all of them will uh, have the things that they've collected and the things that they, they have to share, and then to be able to kind of share their experiences, their passions with the public. So that's that's going to be the real the real plus for this evening. And how old does something have to be to be an archaeological object? I mean, would a frisbee from the 1970s qualify? <laughs> Funny <Yeah>. enough, <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it it there's there's a lot of different definitions for you know for what constitutes an artifact. Uh, the National Park Service uses the kind of sort of the definition of anything older than 50 years. Okay, old. all right. Uh, but and that's kind of universally adopted by archaeologists. But yes, I mean, technically speaking, anything that's even a couple of weeks old or you know is is technically an artifact and so we won't have anything that reason i don't think (laughs) (laughs) now recent archaeological finds keep pushing back the timeline for human settlement in north america it keeps getting earlier and earlier and earlier and indigenous tribes say yeah that's what we've always said we've been here for a long time and is that true in wisconsin as well and would we even know if there were people here before the glaciers melted so yeah that's that's a that's a great Great. That's a great question. Some of the earliest finds are now coming out of places like New Mexico, 22,000 years ago. And like you mentioned, First Nations people have been saying this for a long time. They've been here for a long time. Here in Wisconsin, for, for a very brief window, we actually had some of the oldest documented finds uh, in North America. That's not so much the case anymore. But uh, at this point, uh, we've got fairly solid information that suggests, you know, 12,500, 13,000 years ago uh, that there were people here. So was there still ice in the state? Yeah, in in places. Um, I think that these folks were sort of skirting the margins and keeping to the portions of the state that were still accessible, you know, with running water and animals and plants and things. <laughs> now, it, it also seems like the archaeological record favors cultures that use stone and metal rather than cultures that used biodegradable materials like wood. 
are there th- artifacts of those softer materials out there and what do we know about those cultures so yeah that's uh the i mean the there's a we have an advantage in looking at cultures that use a lot of stone and use a lot of metal because these things don't deteriorate very easily um they can and do over time softer uh, materials organic materials they do exist in certain contexts it's it, it, the older it is the harder it is to to recover those things the contexts have to be more and more you know, prone to that sort of preservation. In Wisconsin, we have, you know, we have bone, in this case, buried mammoth bone um, that goes back 12,400, 12,500 years ago. And so in that sense, it does exist. But, you know, mammoth bone is very big. It's dense. It's thick. um, And it's not easily, you know, destroyed. There's enough time there for it to mineralize and be protected. It gets trickier with smaller pieces, uh, and it, again, has to be the right context. Think like a cave or a rock shelter where there isn't water actively working on it, and it's covered very quickly. Then you can have that potential for having some very old organics. So if you had the, the sort of perfectly sustainable society where everything got recycled or was made out of we wouldn't know anything about it, would we? No. And that would be that would be a that would be difficult for future archaeologists to process. And we do see that, right? There there are big holes in the archaeological record in some places where there's a long tradition of habitation. Think Egypt, right? There are buildings there uh, that were completely recycled by uh, cultures after the traditional ancient Egyptians, and we know something about those places. But the buildings themselves have been recycled and turned into something else. So we don't have, you know, a very accurate picture. How does this fit in with sort of the overall social science mission, the College of Social Sciences? Uh, That's a great question. And we really look to create opportunities for people to understand their role in society, understand how deeply connected we are and how deep history goes so that they can understand no matter what job track they're choosing or where they're going in their lives, understanding your past and the connectedness that you have to our society and other societies can help bring a level of insight and reflection to you so you can move in the world in a way that's not self-centered, but understands how to really promote uh, bringing society together as one. And when we talk about archaeological artifacts, how do we determine ownership of those? Do they belong to whoever finds them? It you know, it varies from place. If it varies from place to place, in uh, in Europe, for example, they have very sort of stringent antiquities laws that really mean that when people find things, if it's above a certain, I don't know, value, if it's above a certain type of artifact, it belongs to the the, the, the state. It belongs to the government. Um, in the United States, we don't have that history. Uh, here, it has always been a case of ownership of land is the predominant sort of issue. So, if you're a collector and um, you don't own the land you're collecting, you do need to have the permission of the person that you're collecting in order to remove those items, and then they become sort of that whoever the collectors, you know, that becomes their item. So that's kind of the way it operates here, except for in the case of state and federal lands. Those in places like that, so your local state park, you know, your your local national park, anything that are in those locations, any land that's owned by the government, you can't remove things from there, and, it, and if you, you do, you certainly can't keep them. So it, it varies. <laughs> this is the bottom line. The, the stuff that, we, that will be coming on our show will all be things that, you know, these people have had permission to collect these things, and it's, it's, but it is 
they're, they are their items. And, and another issue that's come up in sort of archaeological circles is the idea of sort of repatriation of uh, artifacts to, in, in our case, Native Americans. Um, have there been discussions with the Ho-Chunk Nation or other Wisconsin Native tribes about some of these artifacts? Do they feel that that's part of their heritage? Yeah. I, I, there, the, I mean, the discussions could probably be more extensive. They probably should be more extensive. But... In in general, it's been my experience that um, that the First Nations peoples, when they when they ask for something, there's a very good reason that they're asking for something. I'm not sure that I've had anybody say, "Well, we want everything back." Um, it's been more a case of this is significant to us for uh, for reasons that we may or may not share with you. And in that case, uh, that dialogue opens, and I think sometimes it's productive. I think other times it it could be more productive. And Beth, uh, what else can people expect on the 21st? I think you can really expect to have a wonderful evening with your eyes open to things you might not have known about the history of our state and some of the collections that we have here in our state. It's not just an evening for archaeologists or anthropologists or history. It's really an evening for anyone who has a healthy curiosity. And I think curiosity can be a little bit of an endangered species in our world right now. So bring your curiosity. You'll walk away learning something, that is for sure. And it's a wonderful place to gather with others who are interested in examining artifacts and having a conversation about how we are really all connected. All right. We've been speaking with George W. Christensen and Beth Giles Klinkner. The event, An Evening with Artifacts, takes place on Wednesday, February 21st at 6.30 p.m. at the Madison College Truax campus in room D1630. George, Beth, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we had 48 degrees yesterday, which was the warmest reading so far this year. And it came at midnight, incidentally, so the high temperature for today will also be recorded as 48. And after a number of other readings in the 40-degree range the past week or so, the month of February, which you might remember started off 9 degrees below normal through its first four days, has now rebounded to 6 degrees above normal as we pass the midway point. So this month is very much on target to be a repeat of the one just passed. You might remember January ended up at 7.6 degrees above normal. So apologies to the sports enthusiasts out there who have really had a hard go of it this time of year in terms of both the skatable ice and skiable snow. The snow we see tomorrow will definitely be more skiable than uh, whatever it was that came down last Thursday. Uh, But you may need to trek a good way to the east or south to find uh, snow actually deep enough to ski on. Uh, While it had looked pretty good for a while that we might get a decent snow here, the trends in the short-range high-resolution computer models have continued to inch further and further southeast with the storm track of what's coming tomorrow uh, over the past couple of days, and they continue to do so. Uh, If you have a look at the water vapor image of the continental U.S. with the pressure fields on it, which is linked up at the top of the WORT weather webpage, you'll see yesterday's storm uh, pretty impressive with its packed isobars swinging by us to the west and north from about uh, central Kansas up through Minneapolis and over past Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, You can see there how we neared 50 degrees at midnight on that front side southerly fetch. 
and also why the winds were howling from the northwest then this morning after the storm passed. Tomorrow's system, meanwhile, is visible there in the form of an upper circulation currently whirling over northern New Mexico and a surface circulation now starting to kind of close up the isobars over central Texas out ahead of it. That storm will lift uh, expeditiously from there to about southeastern Missouri tomorrow morning and then up towards about Toledo tomorrow night. Like last week's storm, this will, one will be producing active convergence and lift along what will be a well-elevated frontal boundary up at, say, seven or eight or 9,000 feet above ground level here. Only this time around, the resulting saturation and precipitation production will be in a cold enough environment, uh, and it will remain cold enough all the way down to ground level to produce a nice, dry, uh, even fluffy snow, although uh, strong winds might break up the flakes enough to make it slightly more dense. Also, like last week, however, our remoteness from that circulation center and some dry air encroaching from the northwest feeding into the storm are going to eat into the snow totals here, I think, and especially to the northwest of the city, that will be true. But areas down uh, in Rock and Walworth and over in Waukesha counties may see a good uh, six inches or more come down with a fair bit of drifting and blowing around as well, which is the reason that the National Weather Service has issued a winter storm warning for areas just to the south and east of Madison. Uh, The National Weather Service is predicting five or more inches here in Madison, at least the last I looked. That would surprise me a little bit, given the latest guidance. Uh, I would be expecting something more in the two to three inch range, but uh, would be perfectly happy to be surprised. We'll get one day's worth of cooling then behind the storm on Friday with uh, warming from there into next week as an active jet stream passing to our north across southern Canada sends a couple of circulations past us that are going to be mostly keeping southerly winds through here for the next several days after the weekend. Only uh, very weak cold fronts coming in behind those systems. But back to tonight, um, overcast skies, which will continue to thicken downward as we get on uh, towards morning, will prevent temperatures falling much below the upper 20s on northwesterly winds, which will come down to about 4 to 8 miles per hour, then veer more north and northeast and increase as we get on towards daybreak. Light snow may start up in the uh, late night period, otherwise shortly after daylight tomorrow. And then snow will ramp up from there through the morning hours with the likeliest uh, snowfall, uh, likeliest, heaviest likely snowfall from noon through about 3 o'clock in the afternoon before then moving eastward out of the area. Areas far to the southeast of Madison may see uh, inch-per-hour snow rates for a while right in the midday hours. And northeasterly winds up at 12 to 20 miles per hour will uh, blow and drift the snow a good bit. Uh, Here in Madison, I'm guessing we'll get maybe three inches with amounts falling from there steadily as you go north and west up towards Sauk County. Temperatures will hold steady in the upper 20s before uh, starting to fall as the snow comes to an end in the evening. Skies will break some then during the overnight and uh, lighter northwesterly winds uh, will let the temperatures fall down probably to the low teens as we get on towards dawn Friday. And Friday should be mostly sunny with a high temperature in the low 20s on westerly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. They'll back more southwesterly in the late day and overnight. So that'll hold our temperatures up and the overnight between Friday and Saturday uh, to around 20 and increasing southwesterly winds actually during that overnight period coming up to about 10 to 20 miles per hour may actually have us in the mid-20s by Saturday morning. And Saturday will otherwise be breezy and warmer. The winds will come down uh, to some extent during the day, with uh, temperatures in the mid or perhaps even the upper 30s on west of southwest winds up at about 10 to 15 miles per hour. Southerly winds will persist uh, overnight into Sunday, with temperatures returning to 40 or better at that time. 
And it's currently 34 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 25. Winds are out of the west at 5 miles per hour. Uh, overcast over the station at about 2,000 feet. And the barometer is uh, rising slowly at about 29.95 inches of mercury. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We, go, we now go back 54 years ago this month for part two of our look at the UW Black Studies strike of February 1969. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, February 1969, The Black Studies Strike, Part 2. The Black People's Alliance started the strike for a Black Studies Department at the University of Wisconsin on a Friday, giving them all weekend for rallies and actions. Saturday afternoon, February 8th, BPA leader Willie Edwards tells a large Great Hall crowd during a lengthy rally that, quote, the only power we have is to disrupt. And if the 13 demands are not met, quote, this university will not function. After the rally, approximately 600 students march on the fieldhouse to disrupt the Badger basketball game with Ohio State. Many are chanting, two, four, six, eight, organize and smash the state. Alerted by agents at the rally, the university calls in city police. A contingent of about 150 helmeted police with riot sticks and tear gas arrives barely five minutes before the protesters. If they had not arrived at the fieldhouse when they did, Chancellor Edwin Young tells the Regents the following Friday, 600 persons would have poured into that basketball game and there would have been a great deal of violence between spectators and disruptors. As it is, there are scuffles at various fieldhouse gates and Governor Warren Knowles' black rambler is vandalized. Four students, one black, three white, are arrested for disorderly conduct and battery to a police officer. Most of the 11,000 basketball fans inside are unaware of the disturbance. Edwards and about two dozen blacks have tickets and are inside, but their only disruption is giving the black power salute during the national anthem and some synchronized seat switching. They leave after halftime to scattered applause and miss sophomore guard Clarence Sherrod leading the Badgers to an upset victory over the Buckeyes. That night, Chancellor Young issues a statement highlighting the university's initiatives, including efforts to recruit minority and faculty, adding one more black staff member to the Student Affairs Office, and seeking further funding. Young touts recent changes to the university's academic program, the first three-credit Afro-American Culture and Intellectual Tradition course in the new Afro-American Concentration in the American Institutions program, with a series of guest lecturers, a black literature course taught by a black professor in the English department, a black history course, a law school seminar on law and minority groups, 
and Gwendolyn Brooks's creative writing course, which Young does not note is only for this semester. It would be a tragedy if anything were allowed to cloud this progress and threaten the future, he says, and warns that anyone obstructing classes or other university activities is subject to arrest for unlawful assembly. Students who do so may also get suspended or expelled. While peaceful picketing and legal protest must and will be protected on this campus, Young declares, intentional disruption of classes cannot and will not be tolerated. The Wisconsin Student Association Student Senate votes on Sunday to support the strike, provide bail money for arrestees, and condemn indiscriminate violence. And the WSA releases a report by WSA President David Goldfarb and Black Revolution Conference organizer Marjorie Tabankin, calling the university, quote, a racist institution whose only response has been manipulation, avoidance, and co-optation. The WSA report concludes with a call for, quote, all students to mobilize in a united front to strike against the racism endemic in this institution. Libby Edwards tells about 150 students at the Green Lanting Eating Cooperative that, quote, disruption will take place, but the tactics must remain secret. The week of February 10th starts peacefully, with about 1,500 picketing, but not obstructing, major classroom buildings. Classes continue, with strikers entering some classrooms and asking for permission to address the students. Chancellor Young issues another statement, calling for, quote, an atmosphere of reasoned cooperation and mutual concern. No one who talks about shutting down the university can convince me that the welfare and advancement of black people is his foremost concern. At night, a thousand rally on the mall, then climb the hill to Bascom Hall. Amid shouts of, burn, baby, burn, demonstrators burn an effigy of university administrators in Abraham Lincoln's lap. Then they march to the Capitol, filling nearly three city blocks, their number augmented by many high school students. After a Tuesday morning rally for a thousand, an uptick in intensity. A few hundred protesters walk through buildings chanting, on strike, shut it down. They don't attract any adherents and leave when police arrive. But a few hours later, around the same time the state Senate is unanimously adopting a resolution denouncing, quote, the wanton destruction, illegal activity, and disruption of our universities by revolutionaries and their supporters, black leaders tell the thousand or so at a university theater rally of the new tactic— a non-penetrable picket line, people standing in the schoolhouse doors of the College of Letters and Sciences to block anyone from getting in, and when police come, to make like steam and vaporize. And they do. Some form the first affinity groups, linking up and linking arms. Some fistfights break out between students blockading buildings and those attempting to enter, but the lines generally hold and hundreds leave or are turned away. Groups in the hundreds have effectively seized control of several university buildings when close to 200 city and county officers sweep up the hill. The students blocking building entrances withdraw at their approach. But several hundred are already occupying Bascom Hall hallways, which they continue to do until police clear and close the building about 4.15. After that, Police form a line in front of the building and endure abusive shouts from a mob of 2,000, many of whom pelt them with snowballs as they retreat. Wednesday morning, 
An overflow crowd of 1,500 at a Union Theater rally cheer as black leaders urge them to close down the university. Afterward, hit-and-run strikes by strikers escalate. They block and occupy more entrances for more than three hours, even briefly blocking Van Hise, which houses the offices of University President Fred Harvey Harrington. There are several minor injuries, most coming when some of the 200 anti-strike Hayakawas named after the strike-breaking president of San Francisco State, and including members of the Young Americans for Freedom, Sigma Epsilon Phi fraternity, and some football players, battle blockaders on the line. Three buses are vandalized on their campus routes, and traffic is so badly disrupted that the Madison Bus Company shuts down campus bus service for two hours. Police make several arrests, including of the only football player supporting the strike, black freshman Harvey Clay, who later loses his scholarship and goes home to Texas. With city and county law enforcement unable to maintain the peace or scope of response, Mayor Otto Feske and the university leadership ask Governor Knowles to call out the Wisconsin National Guard, which he does a little after three that afternoon. The first battalion of 900 guardsmen begin arriving, in jeeps with machine guns permanently attached, around 9.30, two nights before the weekend. That's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our feature contributors were Stu Levitan and Brian Standing of the 8 O'Clock Buzz. A tip of the hat to Greg Jaboski this evening for production assistance. Chuck Hademan is our on-air engineer. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>